I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You may have noticed that we've doubled the number of shows we create each month. That means we've also increased costs by almost double. It's all part of LiveWire's plan for world domination. And you can help by visiting LiveWireRadio.org and donating whatever you can spare to the cause. Thanks for your time. Enjoy the show. And we'll meet you in the Cave of Ultimate Power in Greenland in 2013. You know the place. All right, Jeff, there's just one more test left in your pre-employment screening. Bring it on. I'm going to nail this one. Though i got to be honest, I lied my ass off in that polygraph exam. Yeah, I thought so. I was pretty sure you were never the CEO of Google. <laughs> you got me. And i got a feeling you won't like the results of my drug test. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. The uh, joint you have tucked behind your ear there was a bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> well, you know, third time's a charm, right? I'm going to knock this one out of the park. Uh, fine. All right, what we have here is a Rorschach test. You tell me what you see represented by these abstract ink blots, okay? How about this first one? That looks like the backseat of my Pinto, piled high with stolen office supplies. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and this? Sexy co-worker's hiney. Yeah, want to slap it. Super. All right, this one? That looks like a disgruntled employee exacting revenge on his supervisor by hitting him with a pillowcase full of doorknobs. Lovely. And this? Oh, butterfly. Oh. Tattoo on Sheila, the cocktail waitress at the lounge where I take three-hour lunch breaks. Uh, okay, you know, Jeff, it just seems like you don't really want to get hired. Ah, busted. But the truth is, you know, I'm just enjoying collecting unemployment, drinking beer and making empty beer can forts where I can drink more beer. Well, maybe you haven't heard, but thanks entirely to Senator Jim Bunning, the unemployment buzzkill from Kentucky, your benefits just ended. What? Really? Holy crap, I need a job. I really am I'm employable, I swear. Show me another Horshack thingy, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Alrighty. What do you see in this last one? Oh, let's see, I'm guessing you want something bold, but not terribly offensive. Creative, yet accessible. Amusing, but not necessarily a little monkey cowboy running a chihuahua through a car wash. I got it. It's, it's... Theater in Portland, Oregon, where we interpret the ink blots that appear on the faces of golf kids when it rains. 
It's Livewire! And now it's the host of Livewire, who cheats on Rorschach tests by drawing little ink blots on her palm ahead of time, Courtney Hameister! Thanks so much for coming, you guys. Welcome to the show. What are people talking about this week? Um, are we talking about Arizona a little bit? Everybody knows kind of what happened in Arizona. They passed a law where uh, cops could pull over people uh, if they were just a little bit too brown, just in case uh, they, they might be illegal. So based on brown skin, they can just stop anybody on the street and just start, start asking them questions, which is, it just, it feels to me like this, this giant trap because it's Arizona, it's 120 degrees there, and the sun's out constantly. So I figure you pretty much pass their border, and you're brown, like pretty much immediately, right? It would be like if cops in, in Oregon just decided that fleece was just cause. <laughs> just if you're wearing fleece, we don't trust you, and uh, I get to stop. But I, I actually uh, don't really trust people in fleece. Um, I don't know about you guys, but, like, they're outdoorsy or whatever. Like, they, they, they enjoy hiking. In, in, hiking is walking and looking at things. So do you not have a TV? There's, do you not have the Nature Channel? Do you... Uh, so, I, I mean, so I don't trust people in fleas, but that doesn't mean that the cops shouldn't. Although, seriously, what are they doing out there? Like... Like they're and they're oh we're we're doing th- it might be they're, we're doing something with crampons that's a made up word that's not a real thing right so there's probably actually something illegal going I I'm gonna look into this and maybe try to change the law what do you have to do to change a law because I don't trust people in fleece I just convinced myself <laughs> Tyler what I mean do you think that I could do you think I could pass that. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, sure. Start lobbying now. Go on down to Salem. They're, they're, they're going to be open and receptive to this kind of thing. They're not doing anything else. But the Arizona thing makes me think about, you know, all the fair-skinned people who are maybe regretting all their tinted windows now. Right. Uh, it's going to be asking for trouble. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, but I'll, I'll get to that later. We won't, we're not going to do any lobbying tonight because we have a pretty amazing show for you tonight. Uh, an audience favorite is with us. Award-winning slam poet is here, Anis Mojgani is here with us tonight. We've also, got the, we've also got the great, 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 I believe, granddaughter of Cornelius Vanderbilt, memoirist Wendy Burden is with us tonight. And our musical guest is the melodic insanity that is the trio sneaking out. So it's going to be a fun night. Before we get to all that, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes. Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, our beautiful siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And as always, poet Scott Poole is with us tonight. He's the author of The Chief Seats. What Scott does, if, if you're not familiar yet, Scott sits, watches the show with everyone here in the theater, and he writes a poem during the course of, of the night, and he lets us know at the end, he reads us a beautiful poem uh, to kind of let us know what we learned tonight. So, Scott, you ready, to, you ready to start writing? I'm ready. I'm so ready. I'm thinking, like, Rorschach test, you know? Like, I want to be the designer of the Rorschach test, you know, instead of 
uh, the usual butterfly thing, you know, I think it would be cool to have, like, uh, put a cucumber silhouette with a hat on it and see how many people say cucumber with hat on it. <laughs> it's a good idea. Yeah. It's a good, I think I it's just, going places. I'm starting with that. Oh, good. Right. I'm looking forward to it then. Make them dance. Yeah. Uh, so you'll hear from Scott in about 56 minutes or so. Thanks, Scott. And, uh, and, and we couldn't do the show without our amazing house band. Subbing for Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops is Jim Brunberg and the nicely coiffed sideburns. show six years ago, I believe, right right after Livewire very first started, and they just completely rocked the house. We loved them, and we're so happy to have them back. Uh, it's Don Henson, David Giroux, and Mike Schmidt. They're a trio that seamlessly blends classical with classic rock. They got their start busking on the streets, but they've now played the High Area Music Festival. They've opened for Katie Lang, and they've played Rhapsody in Blue with Thomas Lauderdale of Pink Martini. Please welcome the boys from Sneaking Out to Livewire.
That kicked ass. Can I say that? <laughs> that was really, really fun. That was a blast. So for, uh, for I just want to describe uh, a little bit about, first of all, Don Henson, uh, who is the percussionist, um, is wearing a lovely crinoline skirt and has a fabulous, perfect, is it a blue mohawk, Don? Sort of, uh, it's sort of uh, it's like midnight blue. Yeah, and you're wearing a hockey jersey, which I feel like you're yeah, but, celebrating the male and the female. Well, but it's an old John Tour jersey, so. <laughs> I think oh. it's actually uh, soccer, but that's my guess. Oh, 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 sorry, yeah, it did. It looked like hockey, but yeah, football, which is what they Close. call it. Close, football, yeah. Right, right. Um, but can, uh, can you describe your, your percussion kit a little bit? Um, well, it's sort of, it started out of necessity, um, and it started with these mongos and a symbol that's no longer here and uh, then the glockenspiel and the typewriter well and you you've you've constructed this this thing well, out of metal I got that's holding stand after it, it got very dusty at a store and they finally marked it down to cost and then I got it and uh, I just put all this stuff on it because mm-hmm. I kept collecting it all I've had this since like junior high school and never done anything with it till now now, what, is, what are you pointing to there? This bell. They were tearing down my junior high school. In oh, Tiger, yeah. It looks and, like a school uh, bell. There it is. Well, I think that it, it's, it, it, looks, it looks a little like um, the character in Mary Poppins, the Dick Van Dyke character, when he had <laughs> meets Brazil. Did anybody see the movie Brazil? Doesn't it look a little bit like an instrument might, that might be in, in Brazil? But in that movie, it would torture someone. Oh, exactly. Most yeah, likely. which you don't do at all. It would make you tell the truth, Courtney. You use, you, 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 you use yours for good, not evil. This is true. I tried to. Right. <laughs> I wanted to... You, you guys used to play a gig at the Kennedy School in Portland, which is another McMinimans yes, we did. venue. And we had a four-year-old mosh pit when we played there. Yeah, well, you, and you had a lot of families, right? Yeah, we played the dinner crowd, and it was fantastic because the kids are, don't, are still not affected by social stigma, so they're just, like, flailing, flailing. All these, like, three- to four-year-old kids just... Flailing, they run back to their mom and dad and giggle, and then run back up and flail. It was, and it was awesome. I mean, it was a mosh pit, that, really. Really, and the parents just—it was nice for them because they could chill, right? You know, <laughs> for that hour of insanity. One night, this little girl came up and she goes, like maybe three or four. She goes, "Could you play David Bowie?" <laughs> I was like, "Well, sure. Wow, that's pretty neat." So we played changes, and and she came back up and she goes. Yeah, I was really hoping to hear Hang On to Yourself. <laughs> and I, I was like, wow. If I knew what she knew then, wow. Mm-hmm. Everybody's a critic, right? Yeah, I was amazing, really. Yeah. Um, well, you guys are going to play one more for us, right? Okay. And then you're going to come back later and play even more. Can you just play, you know, for the entire hour? Sure. Because I'd love that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, once again, sneaking out.
hear from these guys later. You can get more information about Sneaking Out at sneakingout.com. That's S-N-E-A-K-I-N, out. There's no G. Don just curtsied for everyone. You're listening to Livewire Radio, the variety show that offers your short attention span a new audio toy to play with every seven minutes or so. Coming up, poet Anis Mojgani, author Wendy Burden, and poet Scott Poole. We'll have the everything for you tonight. Uh, better throw in a large tater nuggets or Mexi tots or whatever they're called. Okay, I'll have your total at the window. Okay, thanks. Hold it right there, Tucson Police Department. Turn out your engine and keep your hands where we can see you. Whoa, okay, hey, what seems to be the problem, officer? We'll ask the questions here. Let me see your ID, now. Jeez, okay, uh, here, I, I know I wasn't speeding. I, I parked in a drive-thru. Ma'am, we have reason to believe you are an illegal alien. What? We're going to need to see some proof of citizenship. It's Arizona law now, miss. Uh, let's see here. Gomez? Gomez? Oh, yeah. Yes, good bust. High five. High five. Okay, you think I'm illegal because my name is Gomez? This is Tucson, Arizona. Three out of five citizens here are named Gomez. We didn't know your name was Gomez, but that sure fits in with the profile, right, Jensen? Don't say profile, Johnson. Uh, there's no profiling going on here, ma'am. Then why are you questioning me? Like we said, we have reason to believe that... What reason? The color of my skin? Of course not. Uh, well, that would be racial profiling. Which this is certainly not. Yeah, plus your skin is actually pretty fair. It looked way darker from over on the bushes where we were staked out. Yeah. Okay, hold up. You're looking for Mexican illegals by staking out a Taco Bell drive through <laughs> No, not really. That would be wrong? Yeah, totally. That'd be like staking out McDonald's looking for illegal Scottish immigrants. <laughs> Complete waste of time. Complete waste of time, like last night. Oh, total waste of time. Anyway, uh, it's midnight, and you're at a Taco Bell drive-thru. If you're desperate enough to make a run for the border, maybe you're the one to sneak over it. Come on! Pull forward already! Hey, police business, pal! Yeah, hold your horses, Speedy Gonzalez. Gonzalez? Another score. Yeah, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. Look, you have no legitimate reason whatsoever to suspect I'm not a citizen. Oh, yeah? Well, you're driving a Volvo from Sweden, huh? You speak the hordy gordy, huh? Yeah, we might have found us a uh, real Swedish meatball. Okay, that's ridiculous. Okay, all right. Then how do you explain that Chinese flag on your dashboard? It's an American flag. Uh Uh-huh. Made in China. Oh, my God. Or maybe you're from north of the border. Look at this windshield sticker. It's Canadian. What are you talking about? That sticker's from AAA, the American Automobile Association? No, I'm pretty sure it's from Alcoholics Anonymous in Canada. You know, A-A-E? Seriously, that is just weak. Uh, how do you explain the burqa? I don't have to. Number one, plenty of U.S. citizens were burqas. Number two, it's a hoodie. Yeah, check it out. An Obama bumper sticker. Maybe she's from the Soviet Union. There is no Soviet Union. Well, how convenient, comrade. Hey, uh, you know what? Look right there. I think she's a German. German? Why? The CD case on her seat. David Hasselhoff. Germans are nuts for the ha. Okay, Fraulein. What's your excuse for owning David Hasselhoff's Flying on the Wings of Tenderness? I... I have no excuse. You know what? Cuff me. If you really think I'm German or Swedish or Soviet or Chinese, deport me. 
No, you know, we're, we're really only worried about the Mexicans. I'll go when I'm good and ready. Stop beeping that goddamn horn before I come back and kick your ass. Hey, uh, Jensen, you, you thinking what I'm thinking? Sure am, Johnson. She's loud, she's rude, real sense of entitlement. Ma'am, we don't need to see your papers. You're an American, all right. Yep. You're damn right I am, you jackasses. All right, now you with the horn, you're next. Come on, pull forward, slowpoke Rodriguez. Rodriguez, eh? Get out of the vehicle! Hands where we can see him! Our next guest is a two-time National Poetry Slam champion. He has a degree from the Savannah College of Art and Design in comic book art, so he's a visual artist and a writer and a Poetry Slam champion and a huge fan favorite of our live writer audience. His book, Over the Anvil We Stretch, was nominated for the 2008 Pushcart Prize. Please welcome Anis Mojgani to Livewire. <laughs> Thanks, Jim and fellas. Hey, Portland. Hey, Courtney. Hi, Anise. Uh, so good to be back. It's good to have you. Thanks for coming tonight, y'all. In my underwear, I write poetry. Two-headed poetry. Three-legged poetry. Poetry with tin spigots and no training wheels. There are flames airbrushed across my back. And I have bare feet. I have bare feet. <sighs> feet. Speak up, I walk with sticks in my ears and I'm filling twigs with sentences, filing my nails down with memories. My love, it can shave diamonds. Scientists speculate over it. I come from the moon. Neil and Buzz and that third guy, they walked across my tummy. I giggled in a spoonful of cherub, tasted like cherries and wallabies. I write two underwear poems. My poems take off both underwears and dance naked around the candelabra in the living room. I am writing wrists and bands on the back of the belly's back. Bathtub pressing my lips to the shower curtain. I whisper, the goat man is in the woods dancing. The chupacabra, the book man, the golden nugget. There is a cloud splintering like a kneecap inside of my leg. Buy me pants, mother. Buy me a hat. There are moths in my shoulders. I am shaking. I am full of love. I was full of love. I carved out pear-shaped slices of it and fed a million tired ankles. God sat on my shoulder like a cricket. I swatted a bee like a father's advice and asked for it again. Where can I go when every bridge has wheels running alongside its bottom? But I write poems with no training wheels. I write my skull like it was a color. I was picking up and examining inside of my hands for the very first time. 
Standing at the corner of Central Park East and 63rd Street, I hold an imaginary football like a small child, stand two inches in front of a yellow wall and scream directly into the wall's bricks, Go deep! And as I fling the pigskin against the wall, I try to catch my childhood bouncing back at me. Go deep! I'm a three-headed galumph, a blue giraffe, a water fountain on the moon. Catch me, Carbon. Catch me, galumph. Catch me, galumph catcher. Catch me, Lord. Hold me like a bowl, like how the clouds hold the moon, hold the rooftop of the city and my memories in my veins in my veins there is a lonely mermaid murmuring all day long she sings he sings sings such beautiful songs her throat is a girl I once knew her nose is made of silver her backbone a plum a backbone is a plum. Thank you. A few years ago, I was doing a, a middle school workshops up in Port Townsend, and I did that poem, and one of the mothers of one of the kids wanted me to write her a letter telling her what it was about because she thought that with the mermaid imagery I was advocating heroin usage and uh, did not think that it was good for a person to be proselytizing being a junkie for, uh, for 12-year-olds. So, so it goes. I'm going to do one more poem for you guys, and this is called Sock Cop. I was just following the little dog through the skinny trees. I was just collecting water glasses, one by one, taking them to the well and carrying them back one by one, trying not to drop one drop. I was wearing the same shirt as the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that, and the day before that, asking all of my ghosts to join me on the dance floor. Let's twist, let's shimmy. While the room waltzes, I was Watusi. I, I was Jimmy's switchblade. I was the three cherries gang. I was the tallest cigarette. I was black jacket, black jacket, collar, collared up. I was actually yellow shirt lost. I was laying in the dirt and piling it on. I believed if I kept trying to kill myself, then maybe I could talk to the next world. I just got dirty. My belly was heavy. For months, I could barely move. For months, I barely moved. I dreamed of the bicycle and did not know what the bicycle was. I dreamed of the bicycle and thought, what a strange horse that fish is. Do I kill it or ride it? How do I do either of those? Instead, I rode the airplanes like they were church, staring out the window, hoping the chains would not climb this high. At this altitude, all the angels were turning blue. I made a list of my body parts that no longer worked, folded it into an envelope, hoping my mother or a former lover would one day find it. That list is a poem, not a list, so is this one. I rode the airplanes until they brought me 530 miles from the room I was born inside of. My fists then were not so much smaller than they are now, simply tighter. I have been shrinking more and more, with every month, the south, it is my beautiful bed. One day bury me in it. Till then, I will touch it from time to time. Carry me inside of its wet 
wet heat. I sweat when I walk. When I walk, I see my dreams come closer. What I thought was a horse or a fish was really a girl on a bicycle. She had small fingers but reached them towards me. I neither killed nor rode her. All I did was make a hand. All I did was get wet. All I did was shake my ribcage like a library in an earthquake. I spilled books like holy water. My rooms were a mess. The ceiling stopped spinning to read all that I was. I was a thousand years of spines, splinters on my tongue from licking the cathedral. I had worked so hard for my sorrow. So I asked my boss for the night off. Caught a plane. Rode it to Chicago. Combed my hair down, slicked with pomade, put my shiny belt buckle on, and went to a dance. I saw Susie on the dance floor. She put a quarter into a jukebox, grabbed me like a policeman, and said, What you do, Ace? I told her, I work at a malt shop, and sometimes I bury things. But I ain't too good at that. I ain't always too good at that, I told her. She looked at me like we had prayed on the same cliff. She told me she didn't believe in God anymore. I told her I still did. Her and I, we have prayed on the same cliff. I danced with Susie all night long. She held me like a handcuff. I swallowed keys. I'm still waiting for the sun to come up. I don't care if it ever does. I'm warm enough. Thank you. Anis Mojgani. That was Anis Mojgani. You're listening to Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Powells.com, where you can find Anis's book, Over the Anvil We Stretch, as well as thousands and thousands of other poetry books. It's almost overwhelming, all the beauty. Well, our next guest is a New Yorker who has no idea what she's doing in Portland, Oregon. She comes from one of America's wealthiest families, but she's followed what anyone would call a non-traditional career path. She's been an illustrator, a zookeeper, a taxidermist, and I'm hoping that the zookeeper taxidermist thing wasn't concurrent. Uh, She was fired from a pornographic magazine for being too tasteful. Well done. She's written a dark and funny memoir about the decline of her blue blood family called Dead End Gene Pool. Please welcome Wendy Burden to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. So you wrote this book uh, about your life. It's clearly a memoir about your life, but it's, it's also really about your family. Um, it is. It and is. a history of your family. What, what was the impetus for you to write it? Well, actually, it started out as a cookbook, which is kind of funny. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> I had a restaurant for a while in Seal Harbor, Maine, and um, when I moved to Portland, I decided for some reason I was going to write this cookbook and put in the recipes from my restaurant 
And then um, I started researching some of the recipes that my family had contributed and became anecdotal. And then my family back east started to die, uh, certain members. And so then I started writing about them, and, and it just morphed into a memoir, became a full-blown memoir. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's a great history, too, of your family that you open up the book with, so that it really gives some context. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. I'm wondering if you can read just a quick excerpt so that people have an idea. I would love to. Of the book. I'm going to read this part that actually, it doesn't really describe that much about my family, but it, it describes my mother, and my mother is really at the heart of the story. She was uh, quite a difficult character. Um, and it's, uh, it comes from the first chapter, uh, and it concerns my brother, Will, who's um, eight years old and I'm seven. Actually, I've just turned eight, and he's a year older. Okay. Will was only a year and a half older than me, but my grandparents treated him like he was off to college. This past Christmas, instead of a pony, which is what I'd begged for, Santa had brought me an Hermes scarf printed with Lipizzana horses, a fawn-colored cashmere Hermes cardigan with velvet appliqued horse heads, and a topaz bracelet in a velvet box from Tiffany's. Nothing you crow about to your second-grade classmates when school reconvenes. My brother, in addition to a television, an electric typewriter, Davy Crockett pajamas, and Rock'em Sock'em robots, had gotten the pony. After all the presents had been unwrapped, I had raged at my mother, who was making a rare Yuletide appearance on a stopover between Palm Springs and Tenerife. We were in one of the guest bedrooms of my grandparents' apartment in New York. My mother was in a pink-striped bikini, stretched out on the carpet in a contorted pose beneath a couple of carefully positioned sun lamps. Why does stupid Will get a pony when I'm the one who takes all the riding lessons? I'd sobbed from the bed where I'd flung myself. My mother had done her best to comfort me. She totally got the horse love thing. Speaking in a monotone without moving so that her eye protectors wouldn't shift, she said, I'm sorry, toots, I know how you feel, but your grandparents gave him the horse. Don't look at me. Well, why didn't you stop them? You should have told them he hates horses. Oh, get over it. They decided he should have a horse. End of story. She was done comforting. And listen, if I were you, I'd get over potato chips too. Oink, oink. I put my hands up to my chipmunk cheeks. As if she could see this, my mother smoothed her own hands over her nutmeg-colored, flat-as-a-cow-pie abdomen. She flexed her painted toes a few times to ease the strain of the peculiar tanning position she was in. Hey, sometimes that's just how the cookie crumbles. I got up to leave. I had a mind to go finish the bag of Cheetos I'd hidden in the help's pantry. I know where your stash is, toots, she said as I was doing my best Indian walk out the door. And hey, tell Adolf, or Albert, whatever the new butler's name is, tell him to bring Mummy another daiquiri, would you? There's a good girl. The following afternoon, I attempted to snuff out my brother by shoving him out of the limo into midtown Manhattan day-after-Christmas-sale mania traffic. He had swung out like a cartoon character, holding onto the handle of the huge door with the tenacity of a booger, while it yawned out over the whizzing tarmac of 57th Street. We'd traveled that way for several blocks until the chauffeur had break to avoid mowing down a police officer. Yeah, I got in trouble, but it was worth it. So you were 
were you were a dark little girl. I was. You're after after your dad died. You you really um, and if you were six when your father passed I away. I was six. Yeah. And you really got you got into the macabre. You 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 sort of fashioned yourself after after Wednesday Adams. She was my role model. <laughs> What do you think it was that actually sent you in that direction? Well, I think it was definitely the fact that nobody talked about death. Like the day after my father died, we went to school like nothing was wrong. And nobody said anything to us. In fact, I'd stand up in class and raise my hand and say, my father died last night. And the the teacher knew. and She was just horrified that I did that. Um, I think it was a way to get noticed and a way to explain death. And it was... It was also sort of whistling past the graveyard. Like, it was a very fearsome thing, the whole death thing. But um, I figured if I could either steep myself in it or find out about it or make fun of it, the way the Adams family, I mean, their ghoulishness was humorous, yeah. then, then I would be safe in some way. And you used it really to, to, to act out. And, and your, mother, your mother in the book it looms so large. And actually, you dedicate the book uh, for my mother, God damn it. Um, <laughs> that's what the dedication reads. Um, but she, she was really, um, she, she was off very often, would leave you for a year sometimes. Well, not a year, but she, she was searching for the perfect tan and the perfect boyfriend. And, and we just, we were raised by, we had a, a, a Scottish um, nanny and an African-American cook at home in Washington. And then my grandparents had this revolving staff. So they really raised us. And my mother didn't have to worry about it. So she was out of there. Yeah. And she, there are, I, there are so many great stories about your mom in the book. Is there a story for you that's sort of the quintessential story that really sort of explains who she is for you? Well, the quintessential one I can't really say on the radio, but, um, <laughs> but the one that I, I will tell about is, was her good side. My mother really understood animals more than people. And, um, well, it's two stories. Uh, one of them was uh, we, when we lived in Virginia briefly and I was 10, uh, I got bucked off by my pony, and I uh, came, I straggled into the kitchen in shock, and the, the bone in my arm was sticking out through my arm. And my mother, like, looks at me, and she goes, is the horse okay? Is the horse okay? And, and uh, then she made me get, she, we went and we caught the pony, and I had this, like, my arm looked like a Z. And um, she made me get back on the horse while she called the ambulance, because she said, you'll never get back on again, you'll be too afraid. Uh, and the other one is I came home from school once, same sort of time period, and we had uh, a lot of dogs, but one of them was in the corner of the garage, and a neighbor's dog had ripped its throat out. And my mother, but it was alive, and my mother told me to get some alcohol, and a needle and thread, and I did that, and she poured alcohol in the dog's throat and stitched it up, and we went to the vet, and the dog lived. I mean, she was just, and she was so calm about that, and and that was really sort of, that described her character a little bit, I think. Well, and she had a degree in philosophy from Oxford. Yes. Right? And then yeah, she, she sort of tanned for a living. She was a very odd mix. She was, yeah. <laughs> she was like the quintessential New England kind of pilgrim. Very cold, emotionless, very smart. And then she also had, she was very good looking. So she had that sort of strange factor going on where she needed to be attractive to men mm-hmm. um, and, and didn't use her brain as much as she should have and she was a genius it's odd woman very odd woman <laughs> well what for you you have two daughters yes what what did ha- having her for a mother how did that change how you've mothered your girls I am such a good mother um, <laughs> <laughs> 
because I, I couldn't, I mean, it's like I almost couldn't not, not succeed because she was so bad at it. Um, <laughs> really, um, I have two daughters, and I just, I've had to learn how to tell them over and over every day how much I love them because that wasn't the household I grew up in. And I just, I shower them with love and sort of tactile affection. Um, and that's been it's been wonderful for me. It's 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 wonderful for them too. Although they wouldn't know the difference. But yeah, is there anything about your childhood that you wish that your daughters could have experienced? <laughs> money, <laughs> um, money right now. I mean, uh, I wish they didn't have to work so hard right out of college. I mean, the good thing is that their education was paid for, so they yeah. had that. But um, no, probably just the, the amount of travel and the amount of freedom I had because I was largely ignored. But I think they have a much better, much better life than I did. Yeah. In a lot of ways. There's so much tragedy in this book, and it's it's there's so much humor in it. It's it's really funny. Um, but but there were suicides in your family. There was so much um, alcoholism and and. Um, how did you survive? I mean, you, you, you certainly aren't unscathed, you know, but, but I think that you really seem to deal with things in a healthy way. How did you survive? Well, for one thing, I'm a girl. There haven't been any girls in my family, so I think I kind of escaped the, some of the DNA. Like, I, I don't have the manic-depressive gene that uh, my brothers and clearly my father had. Um, and I, have, I had role models. I adopted different families. Like, when we lived in England... I adopted this family called the Dorans, and they were really blue-collar working class, and and they just took me in, and I learned from other uh, sort of parental mentors, and I think that's what really um, saved me, frankly. Yeah, and there seemed to be a, a sort of pervasive sexism in in your family. <laughs> you think <laughs> was was that an experience that that you saw in other families around you who were. Um, I think it was also a different era that you didn't you didn't pick it out and notice it. You weren't trying to be aware of it the way people are now. So I can't really answer the question in that way. But um, I didn't see it as much as in my family because um, my grandfather was really overtly misogynistic, um, and I didn't I never saw that in other families. I mean, certainly uh, in the '60s and '70s, um, women were not as equal as they are now um but it wasn't as obvious as it was in my family yeah and i think that that it really sort of a long time ago the only people who were writing memoirs were people from really important families or famous people you know and now it's really changed the whole genre of memoir has really changed and people seem to want to read stories about people just like themselves. Like, where, why do you think that is, and where do you feel like your book fits in that? Well, I, it's funny. My book fits in, in that I've gotten so many responses from people saying, you know, I'm from, from a nothing family, but my family is just like yours. I mean, I think people want to relate to the dysfunction that is so rampant in families for yeah. whatever reason, and there's plenty of it. And they love to read about it with somebody who grew up in a privileged situation because it makes us all more universal and and it makes nobody seem better just because they had money and I'm one of the reasons I wrote the book was to sort of dispel the myth that the rich are different in a better way (laughs) I mean they're really not different if if anything they're they're more screwed up because of their money yeah yeah it definitely appeared that way (laughs) so if you if you had the chance to get the money back would you of course I would (laughs) 
Mama needs some shoes, yeah. right? Mama needs some designer <laughs> shoes, yes. Well, the, the book is a wonderful book. Um, it's Dead End Gene Pool. I highly recommend you pick it up. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Very Wendy much. Burden, everybody. You're listening to Livewire Radio, the show where comedy and conversation met and fell in love with music. Still to come, more from Sneaking Out and poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight. So I told the guy, hey, if you don't want to hear my phone conversation, go find another Starbucks. In fact, I think there might be another one opening in this Starbucks. <laughs> I know, funny, right? <laughs> oh, hold on. I'm coming to an intersection, so I better put down my latte and spreadsheet and stuff. Oh no, this is gonna hurt. Oh man, I'm dead? Now I'm never gonna finish that effing Sudoku. Hey, you're Sandy, right? Yeah, how'd you know my name? Oh, I saw it on your personalized plates right before you T-boned me. (laughs) Sorry. What are we in line for? Uh, I think it's heaven. I thought we were already in heaven. All this white space? It's like we're in a Mac commercial. Right. Anyway, I think we've got to get past that Pete guy. Pete? You mean St. Peter? Doesn't look like a saint to me. Looks like the guy at the unemployment office. ID, please. Okay, you're good. Here's your orientation packet, and there's a mixer for new additions every Friday night. We do all-winger karaoke and uh, naked scrabble. Ew, why naked? Uh, No one has body issues up here. I and my third nipple, thank you. See you later, Sandy. I hope so. Welcome to heaven. ID, please. Oh, here you go. Sorry about the blood. Oh, nasty. Okay, so whatever you loosed on earth, you shall loose in heaven, yada, yada, yada. So, uh, what'd you loose on earth? What did I loose? Yeah, what'd you uh, send out into the world? Why didn't you ask the lady before me that question? Oh, I know what she loosed. She rescued pugs. I love them. Little puggly wugglies. So she's in. Now, what about you? Oh, okay. Well, I was an actuary. I decided whether the insurance company I worked for should risk... Snore. Okay, I donated blood once. Oh, I saw that. You did it to impress a phlebotomist. And then you yacked on his shoes and passed out. Intention, fail. Uh, One time I turned one of those baby turtles around so it would go back into the ocean. Hmm. Anybody see you do it? Nope. Excellent. One point on the... Oh, you know, but I did blog about it later. (sighs) Have you ever done anything selfless and told no one? (laughs) Of course not. I'm a human being. I mean, haven't you ever heard of ethical egoism? We're all completely self-interested. So any action, even if it seems altruistic, can ultimately be traced to selfish intentions. Really? Of course. Don't you think Mother Teresa felt good about what she was doing? Isn't that ultimately selfish? Well, that's not necessarily... Even you, St. Pete. Why do you do this job? It pleases my lord. And? And I get 20% off at Home Depot. I was going to put some Corinthian columns on the gate here, and I have this... I rest my case. Wow. You're right. Man. Okay, everybody listen up. Whoa, that's digital? No angels playing harps? No, no, that's just an iMix I put together. Okay, time to go. Shutting down heaven. 
You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Wait, I wasn't... I... You know, I hadn't thought of things that way. You're absolutely right. Just a bunch of selfish jerks playing naked scrabble with their hideous extra nipples. Hey! Hey, blame your friend here. Oh, and you're going to have to talk to the Buddhists. This completely screws with the whole karma thing, too. Have a good day. I mean, I didn't... I mean, I wasn't. I was just... I see you in purgatory, jerk. Please welcome Sneaking Out back to the stage.
You're listening to Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister. And if you love the show, you'll seriously love our podcast. All the great content, but portable. Much like your kids, your college loans, and despair, it can follow you wherever you roam, whether you like it or not. And now, as promised, with a poem he wrote during the show to help us digest everything that we've seen this hour, and we've seen a lot, please welcome Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I've learned that I want to be the host in the waiting room in heaven. Yes, the one in charge of the magazines. I would have Maxim, Hot Rod, National Geographic, but no highlights or golf or yacht magazines. Instead of a reception desk, I'm going to have the most beautiful brown oak bar, and I'll be pouring the drinks mixed and distilled exclusively from the joyous tears of angels. Don't worry, it's okay to drink angel tears. It's not heaven, it's just the waiting room. The band in my waiting room would be sneaking out because they can play every song ever written simultaneously (laughs) and play it well. When they play, I feel like I'm stocking the shelves in a grocery store really fast and I'm arranging all the cereals alphabetically in an expert manner. And in my waiting room, I would occasionally arrange everyone alphabetically by height and they would say... I'm almost in heaven, and this is the first time I've been ranged alphabetically. Oh, boy, will the wonders never cease. And that would be great. There would be a constant sock hop. Everyone would be in their socks. Let's all twist and shimmy. People would announce, I'm Jimmy Switchblade. Woo! Why a sock hop? Because when people are in socks, anyone can dance and pray, like Aeneas says, on the edge of a cliff. You can't have a cliff in heaven, people would say. It's okay, I would say. It's not heaven. It's just the waiting room. And I would be wearing that standard-issue Jesus robe, soft as a fawn-colored cashmere sweater. And every time someone said, where can I get that fabulous robe? I just put my hand next to my ear in that friendly Jesus way. And they would say, oh, him, right. I imagined fights and lovemaking would break out constantly. Maybe it would be the same act. And people who supposedly love you would try to push each other off the cliff of my waiting room, but I'd have roots for them to always handily grab onto, and the people would laugh and hang on with the tenacity of a booger, and if anyone's bone was sticking out of anyone's arm, we'd just laugh and spill our drinks and say, whoops! (laughs) Don't worry, it's okay to laugh. It's not heaven, it's just the waiting room. But the best part would be the hope in people's eyes, because in the waiting room of heaven, no hope could possibly be squashed when you're having a martini. And who wouldn't want to stay in a place like that forever? Scott Poole, everybody, with what I learned tonight. That's our show. Thanks so much for coming out, everybody. Our guests tonight, Anis Mojgani, Winnie Burden, and Sneaking Out. 
The Button Chops with Jim Brumberg, Courtney Von Draley, and Dave Jorgensen. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Howell's Books, Tonkin Torp, Fitch & Associates, The Falcon Art Community, the Regional Arts and Culture Council, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Hotel Deluxe. Livewire is created and produced by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Technical production by Jim Brumberg from Mississippi Studios. Recording engineering by Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jay Demko. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Tyler Hughes, and Sean McGrath. Performer Laura Faye Smith and Siren of Sound Pachinowski. Livewire's house poet is Scott Poole. Production management and lighting by Drew Flynn. Theme by Courtney Vondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Craft services by Old Wives Tales. Graphic and web design by Danger Creative. Web development by Amalgamotion. Podcast consulting by Morley Studios. Our operations manager is Adrian Schaefer. Publicity by Cassell Communications. For more information about Livewire or to download our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is Tyler Hughes, and that's the end of the credits. If you missed any or all of these credits, you may receive a credit voucher good for a future broadcast. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.